forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's be seated together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, good morning, friends. My name is Father Ben. I'm one of the priests here. It's uh, great to see you. It's great to be among you. And um, it's great that we get to hear some word of good news this morning. Amen? Uh, and here is our good news. Beloved, uh, despite what many of us have absorbed from our upbringing and our culture, our life together in God is not an insurance policy that kicks in after we die. Our life in God is not a set of rules to follow or a set of propositions to assent to in exchange for an easy life or heavenly bliss. Nor is our life together in God one of the options in the marketplace of self-help resources to draw upon when we need a spiritual pick-me-up. All of these images have been presented to us in subtle and not-so-subtle ways as the heart of Christianity, the heart of the church. They've been offered to us as what the faith is really all about, and in many ways it's impossible to completely rid ourselves of these paradigms uh, of, of what our life in God is all about, and we often act like they're true. But in our gospel passage today, Jesus tells us the truth about our life in God, and this is our good news for today. Love, beloved is at the heart of our life together in God. In Christ, God's love is lavished on us, cultivating in us a whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, love for God and neighbor that overflows the borders of our self-interest, creating what Dr. Martin Luther King called beloved community. It's embodied communion. It's material solidarity with one another for the sake of the world. Our gospel text uh, is where we get this good news, right? Jesus, uh, the context here is that Jesus has been riding this wave of popularity in Mark's gospel into Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. Um, nobody understands this except him. And this passage is really the culmination of that narrative. Uh, up until now, religious and political leaders of all kinds have been challenging Jesus and testing Jesus and trying to take away some of his honor in the eyes of the people because the religious leaders are learning my, our honor is being taken away from us because everybody is flocking towards this Jesus, his works of power, his wisdom, his authority are a deep challenge to us, and they keep coming at him, challenging him, and Jesus just keeps winning these battles. And now, in our passage, a scribe comes to him in a very different posture. He comes in a very different posture. A scribe who's seeing all this happening decides to ask him an honest question. Jesus seems to recognize this as an honest question. Because all the other questions were tests, and Jesus usually finds a way to answer it without answering it, right? But this question, notice, he says, which command is first? And Jesus answers him very directly. Just as with the rich young ruler, just as with James and John, just as with Bartimaeus, Jesus offers himself as the servant of all who will ask for what they want. Which commandment is first of all, the scribe asks. 
which was a common question for teachers of the law, which is the law was said to have 613 commandments. So obviously, there has to be some priority, right? <laughs> which is the most important? Like, you know, if there's a fire in the house and you can only grab a few things, what are the most important ones? In a crisis, where do we, where do we, go, where do we fall back to? What's the, what's the first command? It's a very normal question for teachers of the law. There has to be some priority to these commands. And Jesus gives the scribe, again, a straight answer, pointing to the Shema from Deuteronomy, which we read today, this morning as well. The first is this, the first command is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And as we can see from the context in Deuteronomy, this refers to more than just singing worship songs in the church or doing our devotions every morning. This is a holistic commitment. It's a way of ordering one's entire life in God's love. This is what all of that, keep them in your heart and talk to them, recite them to your children and put them on your bodies and write them on your doorposts. That's what this is all about. This is about a way of life together, not just specific practices and not just specific beliefs, a habitus, if you will, a way of life that we live together. And then Jesus goes on and says, and the second is just like it, which is just like, it's a little cheeky, right? Which commandment is first? Jesus is like, I'm going to give you two. <laughs> I resonate with this as a preacher. I can always over-answer every question. But Jesus does this, I think, because it's intimately connected to the first commandment. It helps interpret the first commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself, he says, quoting Leviticus 19.18, which is the sort of the end cap of this whole passage, if you look at the context of that, about uh, justice and living in, living in justice and peace with one another and with the poor. And so love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus connects these two commands on purpose, and in many ways, they're the same thing. We could say, for example, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving your neighbor as yourself. Because there's lots of ways to be zealous for God that don't involve loving your neighbor as yourself, aren't there? We see a lot of them out there in the world today. Love the Lord your God by getting rid of the world, ridding the world of heretics. Love the Lord your God by denouncing everyone out there who's getting it wrong. Love the Lord your God by conquering and colonizing and civilizing. No. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving your neighbor as yourself. Friends, love is at the heart of our life together in God. In Christ, God's love has been lavished on us and cultivates in us a whole heart, soul, mind, and strength love for God and neighbor that overflows the borders of our self-interest. And it creates beloved community. It creates embodied communion with one another. This is a material, bodily solidarity with each other for the sake of the world. I think sometimes we read this passage as love your neighbor instead of yourself. You guys ever heard it that way? Love your neighbor instead of yourself, but it's as yourself, which just means give others the same basic respect and care that you give yourself. And if you find that you don't give yourself that much respect or care, go ahead and start to allow God's love to overflow towards you, too. It's an important part of this. It's assumed here in the passage, but self-loathing isn't healthy or holy. So many of us do need to learn to love ourselves as God loves us, which is not the same thing as like a 
treat yourself self, like spirituality. That's not what I'm saying, okay? If I can make a Parks and Rec reference. Because self-indulgence is not healthy or holy either. And we learned the distinctions between these things in community with one another as we're vulnerable with each other. As we learn to confess to one another, I don't know, how to, I don't know what it looks like to honor and respect myself. Am I being self-indulgent? Oh, well, let's talk about it. Let's discern. This is a big part of what happens in DNA groups, this kind of thing. So as yourself, loving your neighbor as yourself simply means that we join ourselves in solidarity with others, treating their needs as ours. We love ourselves in very simple ways every day, right? We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. Most of us are showered. You know, we take care of ourselves. I'm not pointing any fingers, so. Um, but we take care of ourselves, right? We, we shelter ourselves. We, we, we take care of our basic needs. And this command just is Jesus saying, just take care of others as you take care of yourself. Love others, love your neighbor as yourself. Solidarity is the word for this. I've said it several times already in this sermon, but solidarity means that I treat your problems as my problems. I treat your joys and triumphs as mine. We're in solidarity with each other. To love God with all our strength, that word there doesn't mean that we join the power team and rip phone books in half for Jesus. In case you were thinking about that. No shade to anybody who wants to do that, though. That's fine. No, it means that we love God with all our resources. It means we love God with our money, with our possessions, with everything we have. It's very concrete. It's very embodied. That's what solidarity means. So loving God by loving our neighbors isn't just warm, fuzzy feelings that we have for God and each other. It's a feeling, yes, but it's a feeling that propels us into embodied solidarity with each other. It's more than a feeling as well as all other neighbors in need. So this is how we love God, friends, by loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's how we participate in God's life. This is salvation. This is what it means to be saved. This is our life together. In God for the sake of the world. So to love my neighbor as myself means I join myself in material, embodied solidarity with my neighbor. I place my body with theirs. I seek their well-being as if it is my own. Because it is. Because it is. And if there are systems and structures that are set up against the flourishing of my black neighbor or my indigenous neighbor, my immigrant neighbor, my impoverished neighbor, my exploited neighbor, I oppose them in Jesus' name. As far as possible, I place my body with them in their experience of suffering and marginalization, leveraging or giving away whatever cultural or institutional power I have on their behalf. This is what it means to live our life in God. And all of this, friends, is rooted in God's love for us. It's nothing, it's nothing we need to muster from within ourselves. It's rooted in God's love for us, given to us as a gift. Our collect for today, I think, is a wonderful example of this theology prayed in our midst. If you guys remember, it was, a few, it was several minutes ago. But our collect of the day, which I would encourage you to pray this week, Starts by saying, Almighty and merciful God, it is only by your gift that your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Love for God, love for neighbor. Because, friends, love is at the heart of our life in God. In Christ, God's love is lavished on us and cultivates in us a whole heart, soul, strength, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love for God 
and neighbor that overflows the borders of our self-interest and creates beloved community, embodied communion, material solidarity with one another for the sake of the world. Amen? So how do we respond to this good news today, friends, and in our lives? A few things. One, let us resist the false solidarities that our culture seeks to squeeze us into. Here's what I mean by that. Whiteness, for example, is a false solidarity that obscures our gospel solidarity. So let us seek to continue to divest ourselves of this false identity and live in the truth of our createdness and our connection with our brothers and sisters. I mentioned in our class this morning that I'm, I'm taking an anti-racism class on Thursday nights right now, and I'm learning more about the history of white supremacy and the ways that it continues to distort our vision. One of the, one of the things that hinders our ability to love our neighbors as ourselves is our automatic, inherent absorption of the doctrines of white supremacy. We don't even realize what we're believing. We don't even realize the ways that we're identifying with other white people instead of the people that we're actually meant to be in solidarity with. We're identifying with this thing called whiteness. I could say more about that, but this is supposed to be a short sermon. So friends, that's one way, though, that we can respond to this good news. Let's continue to divest ourselves and learn this history. Read a book on this. It's important. Let us also continue to find practical ways to share in concrete, practical, material, bodily solidarity with each other. We get to practice this as the church, and it flows out from here. Ryan is creating for us a library of things. It was mentioned last uh, week. Uh, I would encourage you to look at it. Sign up for it. Offer your resources to others in the community. Offer your skills to others in the community. Also receive from others. Don't just assume you need to buy something if you need something. That's one way. That's a really practical way. Capitalism is always trying to squeeze us into these isolated, self-sufficient nuclear families who don't need anyone. Let's resist that today, this week, as this library of things gets started, and let's share in solidarity with each other. Let's continue to share our prayer requests with each other on GroupMe and in Table Group. This is a way that we share our burdens with each other, and when someone does share these things, pray for them and offer your own burdens for others to pray for. Next week, we're going to start... This is another way that we can share in solidarity with each other. Next week, we're going to start our giving campaign for 2022. Part of how we share one another's burdens, part of how we share in solidarity with each other is we pray about how much we'd like to contribute toward our common life together. So the offering that we're going to do a little bit later in the service is this expression of this material solidarity with one another as we seek to live our lives in beloved community. Let us also continue to discern how God is calling us to place our bodies and our resources in material solidarity with the marginalized and the oppressed. Matt, uh, last week, talked about the ways that mammon warps our imagination and skews our vision. Let's keep asking questions about what it means, to, about the things that seem like common sense to us. And let's press into the ways that we unwittingly participate in the oppression of marginalized peoples. Finally, let us also continue to celebrate and feast together. Yesterday, 50 people or so, I heard that number thrown around, I didn't really, I didn't really count, uh, celebrated uh, at a Halloween party at the Pitts' farm. We just had a wonderful time together, singing, we shared songs. Joel is, Joel's like a jukebox of like cover <laughs> tunes. He's got like 2,500 of them in there. If you 
if you push him the right way, just like John Denver songs start coming out, it's, it's pretty incredible. So we were sharing songs together, we shared food together, we ate together, we shared stories together. Let's continue to find ways to do this as a community. This is part of how we share in solidarity with each other. We celebrate, we feast together. Um, and I'm taking a little bit of a risk here, but I think I'm going to try this, okay? Did I get your attention? <laughs> but let us continue to prioritize the Feast of the Eucharist together. Yes, here is a priest telling you to come to church. And I know it's complicated. COVID, I get it. See you online. Um, I get it. It's complicated. There's vacations, there's sickness, there's illness. There's also church hurt. That's all, that's all stuff that's very real, and I totally understand it. But I also want to say that our culture is relentlessly indoctrinating us into a mindset that treats church like entertainment or like self-help. But friends, this is the feast par excellence. The materiality of love is embodied in the sacraments. The sacraments aren't magic bread and wine that give me warm tinglys if I do it right. That's not what sacraments are. The sacrament is the presence of Christ embodied in bread and wine that we share together. At this table, we are remembered with one another. We are put back together. We become what we receive, as we say in the prayer. We become the body of Christ at this table. And in many ways, that's what happens each and every week. We become the body of Christ in this feast as the body and blood are placed in our hands and put into our bodies, taken into our bodies. This feast is where we glimpse the heavenly feast, where we see the world as God intends it, and we get to participate together in God's presence. Everything we do in table groups, DNA groups, finds its root and its center here and flows out. The Eucharist is the feast from which all other feasting flows. The Eucharist is Christ's solidarity with us that empowers us to live in solidarity with each other for the sake of the world. So in all of these ways, we aren't so much fulfilling an obligation to get a reward, friends. Rather, we're putting ourselves in spaces where we can participate in God's life and love. We encounter and grow in love when we place our bodies and our materiality in solidarity with each other and with the marginalized. Friends, love is at the heart of our life together. In Christ, God's love has been lavished on us and cultivates in us a whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, love for God and neighbor that overflows the borders of our self-interest and creates beloved community, embodied communion, material solidarity with one another for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.